What if your family lineage had murders and mental illness? How would you handle it? Do you think you could? Mental health care is a prevalent issue in America. In a country of more than 300 million people, there are only about 3,500 psychiatric beds available for those who need them. The lack of mental health care is clearly disproportionate to the need for it. Furthermore, those who do seek help often face waiting periods of at least or as long as eight months. This dearth of resources and the long wait times create an unhealthy cycle. Those without mental illness may not be able to get the help when they need it, and those with mental illness may be less likely to seek treatment if they cannot find help quickly. One in four adults in America lives with a diagnosable mental illness, and one in five children has at least one mental health disorder. It's difficult to find resources for mental health care, which is expensive and often inaccessible, and more of the focus is on physical health rather than mental health. These are two reasons why it's important to be conscious of mental health. We need to make sure we're taking care of ourselves mentally, too. The United States is a country that has built its foundation on the notion of equality and justice is lacking when it comes to mental health. In 2014, the United States had the highest rate of deaths by suicide in people aged 25 to 64 years. The problem with this statistic is that mental health is not being addressed at all. Those who face mental illness are often given less consideration than those with physical illnesses. This problem has been going on for a long time and needs to be fixed. Mental health should not be a taboo subject any longer. It will take a lot of work. But there are ways to bring mental health into the public eye and to get more funding so that we can have less murders in America. This podcast today is really a milestone for me. It is number 50. It is my second season and the big 5-0. So I want to say thank you. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a subscriber. If you're currently not a subscriber, please consider subscribing. This will help the channel grow. And if you're brand new, please subscribe, please like, and please spread the word. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, I am very pleased to have my guest, Betty Frizzell. She is a lifelong law enforcement officer, a former chief of police. She is also a brand new author. So let's listen to her and what she has to say about her career and her life and her brand new book. Yeah, I'm a career law enforcement officer. I'm a former chief of police for Winfield, Missouri. I've been a detective and a SWAT team member. Um, but most recently, uh, I I wrote a book about my family. Uh, it's called If You Can't Come Here, if You Can't Quit Crying, You Can't Come Here Anymore. And it's about how um, my sister closest to me in age, because I'm the youngest of eight, um, murdered her husband. And, and looking back, in my family, even though I've been in law enforcement my whole life, we've always had a murderer every generation, sometimes two, sometimes three murderers for the last five generations. And I wondered how I came out of that unscathed and how others didn't. And that's what the, the book is about, just trying to figure out that transgenerational trauma 
and then how the criminal justice system in rural United States does treat people with mental health disorders and um, the lack of resources once they're in the criminal justice system. So you definitely have firsthand knowledge and experience as far as mental health issues and things like that and dealing with it then. Yes. Um, yes, uh, we've had uh, the mental health issues have been, my, my doctorate work is in psychology mm. and uh, the mental health issues are, are in my family. And you think that you get past it, but. Yeah. Um, so people are probably going to wonder, well, what is your background other than uh, personal experience? So you do have a doctorate and you have had some experience professionally as well, right? With mental health uh, counseling and things like that, have you? Yes, I, I've worked for state agencies doing social work and um, uh, that kind of investigation as well after I left law enforcement. Plus, I've been a, a professor and I taught during the uh, Ferguson unrest in Ferguson, Missouri. Right. Now, your your book, I don't want to throw it's a labor of love, but it sounds like it's really a, a, a yeah, hold it up. Go ahead. Let, yeah. let everybody see. There yeah. it is. And That's my sister just, and me. Wow. Oh, yes. Okay. And it was just uh, just released, correct? Yes. Uh, and Amazon, but it's in bookstores too. That is exciting. Uh, we'll make sure that we have the link in both the podcast and the video cast and everything where they could go to uh, purchase the book. So that's okay. that's awesome. Uh, now, as far as the mental health goes, it, it's mental health in America. It's it's nothing new. It is something that the little research that I've looked at is it's increasing every year, both in youth and in adults, correct? Right. And a situation like we can talk about a case that's made national news here recently with uh, the young lady that was found deceased in the national park. If you look at that police video, I think if we would, if they would have had more it would have had a, a, someone there to, that understood the crisis that both of them were in. That 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 video was haunting to me um, uh, because the Gabby Pettitino, I think is her, is her name, but that case is haunting to me because my sister was in that situation prior to her alleged crime. So it, I kept calling the police in the rural city that she lived in, but unfortunately they didn't understand the whole um, the whole dynamic of the domestic violence that she was in. And I think that happens a lot. And um, when people want to talk about restructuring, you know, the pay for police or restructuring how we pay for police, that's one thing we need to look into is um, I, I've noticed out here in Washington state that I've seen some uh, social workers with the police. I wish that was uh, a lot of other places because a lot of times police are the first responder in a mental health crisis. And um, that was what was going on in my sister's home. She had a son who was living with a schizophrenic condition, plus her own mental health conditions and her husband. So it was a recipe for a tragedy that, that could have been prevented um, had there been the resources in the rural community she was in. Do you think in smaller and more rural communities that, that it's a larger problem or it, it's, is it pretty even across the board, whether you're in a large city or a, a rural area? I think that the lack of resources is a problem in the rural areas, just like in uh, what I talked about in my sister's case. Um, her primary physician was telling her, okay, you need to go uh, get help, but she, there was no resources. Like the, the closest domestic violence shelter for my sister was over 40 miles away. That doesn't sound like a lot to people that 
have the resources to get there, but you're having to uproot a whole family to go to somewhere else. So that's the, the issue I think is the lack of resources in the rural areas opposed to uh, a bigger metropolitan area. Oh, you're right. I mean, 40 miles to me sounds like, well, I could just jump in the car and go, but right. um, in certain situations, as far as uh, domestic violence goes, I'm just going to throw this out there then. Is there oftentimes like fear of the women just even leaving to go to see somebody? Yes. My sister, um, I call it the vision of aging before the tragedy, before this even happened. And she uh, was so the way they approached it was they showed up to her house with the division of this is in Missouri this is not here in Washington but they showed up to her house with the police officer and the division of aging uh, uh, worker which was for the uh, the worker's safety because of the violence from her husband and um, she just didn't feel comfortable talking it was just there if because there I, I think that was handled inappropriately to begin with but um the, the, the lack that you just don't want to leave and you just you don't understand you're in that situation and I think everybody that's trying to to make sense of it doesn't understand well why don't they just leave well they just can't it's just it's not that simple I think we've come past that and I hope we have to understand that especially with my sister's situation is there anything that you could just throw out there uh, and and what we're talking about what we're saying is not um uh, we're not to say that people should go out there and do this. This is just mm -hmm. options and things like that, that we may be talking about. So right. I don't want people to get the wrong idea and say, oh, Betty says, or Chuck says yeah. that you should just leave, just run. No. But there are certain situations where, like you said, you, you can't. Um, yeah. I, I would imagine that you've, a uh, person on the, the, the receiving end, the bad end, it feels powerless. Is that a, a right, right word to use? Well, hopeless, powerless, hopeless. it could be. And that's the, the adjectives that my sister described her situation in. Um, she was fine with uh, living like she was, even though we had tried to intervene other times during the 13-year marriage. But um, she could handle it a lot better before her stroke. She had, had a stroke one year prior to the, the incident. And so she had bleeding on her brain. And um, uh, she didn't. She didn't have the, the uh, intellectual, uh, you know, efficiency to lead, to to deal with things like she used to. She used to have prior to the. She didn't have the strength for one thing, and then plus the uh, extra thing of having a schizophrenic son that came into the home. Mm. That was another issue. I want to uh, pull away from the discussion of that and go a little bit more into your your book and. Mm -hmm. Uh, really how and why you wrote the book. Was it a purpose for um, letting your emotions out or is it a combination of that and to help people who may read the book? Um, I think we all, um, and I, I used to find this fascinating when I was a police officer, people who come from abusive homes like myself, um, there's always one or two shining stars that come out of it because of eight kids, there's only two of us that don't have criminal histories. And I wondered, I started writing the book just to be cathartic because I was in so much pain when she got sentenced to life plus 25 years that I thought, how did I escape this? How did my other sister, how did, how did we get the, where we are now? And I think that the book, I, I, I'd like everybody to, to understand if they are like me in that situation, you know, to maybe rejoice in being that one that got, a, got out and, 
to think about it because I also, I thought that I had escaped the mental health con conditions that plagued my family all these generations and caused all these different tragedies and different murders. But um, however, I didn't. I just, I had a better ways of coping with things. Whereas my sister didn't have the intellectual capacity to do that. She's always been intellectually deficient. And um, my other family, that's, that's another thing that, that, that they just didn't have the coping mechanisms. Plus I didn't, I, you, when you come from an alcoholic family, you either become another alcoholic or you just are so scared you won't even take a drink, which is the way I am. And alcohol changed my sister's personality, just like it did my mother, just like it did my grandfather, just like it did everyone else. Because I'm not talking just one generation of murderers. It was my great-grandfather was murderer, my mother, my grandmother, my sister. I have two sisters that have been accused of murder. So um, I, the, I, I want people to understand that when you do come that, rejoice in that, be happy that, and, and if you do have mental health conditions, it's okay. You, can, it, you know, that was maybe your coping mechanism. I see them as my superpower. And uh, it's been very freeing for me to, to admit that I do have these things. You know, I, I, I do rituals with the OCD stuff that I do and, and things. And I didn't understand that those were really superpowers that helped me to cope with trauma. The trauma of my childhood, the trauma of being a police officer for so many years. And maybe that, that's what drew me into being a police officer, that I, I had that inherently good. I, I try to be, when I was a young girl, I write in the book about, um, I loved Wonder Woman because she had that golden lasso that she could make someone speak the truth. And I always wanted people to speak the truth because it wasn't always spoken in my house. And um, I think that was, it. you know, my, I, I was so OCD about being, being truthful and having the truth in my life that uh, that was, and so now I see it, I used to be so embarrassed because where I come from in the rural country you know we're right on the southern we're right on the tip of the southern states and I consider myself more southern than I do midwestern even though I'm from Missouri um that we didn't talk about mental illness or mental health conditions we just it, it wasn't talked about just like with Vicky you know it was just my mom knew she had all these these issues but she would say oh she just ain't right in the head that's the way they would dismiss them instead of getting treatment mm. so it's misdiagnosed from home Right. And school. They think about her school only graduated 25 people in a, in a graduating class. They didn't know anything how to deal with behavior disorders in the late 70s, early 80s that she was going through school. They would just paddle her. So she was getting abuse from home, abuse from the school. And then as she got older, she got abused in the criminal justice system because they did, she had conduct disorder, which if you know about conduct disorder, she was uh, oppositional defiant. So she would just be defiant. For no reason. I mean, she could because she can't behave her, she can't regulate out her behaviors. So now since she's been in prison, she's had her nose broken, she's had three ribs broken. And so I've made it my mission <laughs> to go help with uh, with correctional officers to understand, you know, um, that she can't help herself. It's not that she's being defined, she just can't really regulate out her behaviors. So we have we still have issues within a professional field, um, correction officers, off, police officers, law, law enforcement officers, where they are not properly trained, so they can't identify these, um, uh, I don't want to call them problems, but um, issues that certain individuals may have, and they'll they'll look at them as troublemakers. Right. Like Vicki, she can't regulate out her behavior, so she's seen as, 
she's been in solitary, you know, a lot of her, her, her uh, um, sentence, she's been in solitary confinement because she can't regulate out her behaviors. And um, so uh, that's been an issue with it. But I, you know, some of the amount of training, they're not trained because that's, they, they don't have the mental health training. That's where we need more social workers to come in and, and, and do mental health crisis that um, I, I would have loved to have had someone that was a mental health professional and with me when I was on patrol that could understand uh, what I was dealing with because, you know, you just want to make an arrest. That's, you know, you want to control the scene. Whereas what happens after that? Do they go to, you know, that's, that, that's the situation that they get put in the court system and then you get racked up with fines and fees and things like that. Whereas, uh, We've got to stop making prisons our asylums, our mental health institutions. So why is it, why do you think this is an issue and why isn't it resolved? Meaning that we have a lot of social workers out there and a lot, of, I, this is what I hear. A lot of social workers say, I can't find a job, I can't this. Why, mm -hmm. why what's that block that law enforcement, why is that wall there that we cannot have social workers working alongside of law enforcement? Why can't there be, you know, two for every 10, you know, 20%, at least in the, uh, in the building, you know, just in or case. Or a call-out social worker, even, even a call-out situation. It comes down to money. That's where it goes. Where's the money allocated to? They allocated to a SWAT team that's going to come in and, and wreck the house? Because I've been in the SWAT team. I've been in the perimeter. I've, I've done everything, go in there. Is it going to be allocated to them or are they going to be allocated to the social workers? That's one thing you got to think about. Is it going to be allocated to the drug units? It's going to be on. And, that, and I see this problem more in the, where I came from. Um, I think that that situation happened, in, especially, you know, where my sister's at. Because according to the Vera Institution, the more uh, people that are going to jail in Missouri are not from St. Louis or Kansas City, the bigger metropolitan. They're coming from these rural areas because it's a moneymaker. Mm. Let's be honest. It's finance. And even in, in the state of Missouri, there's, a, there's legislation where if you're incarcerated in a county jail, that they can sue you for your benefits. And that means your social security benefits. Uh, so you are, you are, if you're poor, you're gonna keep being poor because even if, you're, if you were um, exonerated in the charges, you're still paying for your incarceration. Wow, okay. Um, only in America. <laughs> I know somebody's giving me on that saying that it's a quote, um, but that is sad. Where, um, like you're saying, it has a lot to do with with money, uh, it's, it's allocation of money, not getting enough taxes or not putting the money in the proper places, and then I, I that probably comes all down to um, politics, bureaucrats, and things like that. Um, is there ever going to be? Is there ever going to be an end? Do we do? The rest of the citizens have to pay more taxes. What can we do to help? Well, the, this is a situation. Money, uh, it could be there. It's just going to be allocated differently. It's, if it's allocated differently, maybe that's going to be, that would be a, a help. But um, when you've got a jail, a county jail that makes their money off of having people incarcerated, like my sister was taken to an ATM and her last social security check was put on her books. So that means that this was a person that had no bond, was considered a danger to herself and others, but she was taken out of the jail by the sheriff and allowed to get her last social security check. And then his, his thing was, well, the taxpayers will pay for it. 
Well, no, not in the state of Missouri. They're not going to pay for it because you've got a law that says you can then garnish my sister's wages, even her social security check. So that's, that's always the thing. The taxpayers are going to pay for it. Well, I would rather someone get help and become a productive citizen and pay a little bit more sometimes than, or have different funds allocated than kicking in doors or doing no-knock warrants, which are still very legal in, in where my sister was at, uh, than I would um, to see someone that's going to be incarcerated and then they go through the whole system, which is is a lot of money. I, there, um, you, you pay to be on, there's, in some states, you pay to be on probation. You pay, you're going to pay restitution the rest of your, for a, a long time. So that's, and maybe you, sh you should pay for your crime if you did that. But we're talking about a woman who is, was deemed um, disabled and had just had a stroke. And now she's going to be in prison. Her eligibility for parole is 2048. So if she's wow. eligible then, because with her conduct disorders, who knows if that's going to be held against her when she goes from the parole board. She's already exhausted all of her appeals. And so now we're at the point where all she, it, it, there's only one, you know, three ways she can get out. And that's with parole, clemency from the governor, which is not going to happen because he's a former uh, sheriff. And, or um, that she gets a habeas corpus from the federal government, which only 3% of those were ever uh, given. And so she's had to live through the COVID situation in there with, and sometimes she doesn't even know where she is, but the, you know, we try to look on the upside. Uh, she is, uh, she takes, gets her meds regularly. She gets to see a psychiatrist every month that she looks forward to. But this tragedy could have been prevented had, had um, two things occurred. There had been more resources in the rural area where she was at and better regulation of the opioids that uh, were given to her and her husband to uh, help with more of their mental health issues. That's another thing, opioids. This was in 2013 that the crime occurred. Okay. And they were on so many opioids that I, 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 there was two pages of pills that they were both on. So uh, in the book, I do address the whole opioid problem with, uh, they were just medicating them with that instead of medicating them with, with the mental health um, medication. Wow. Um, do, you th do you think that education, early education uh, would, would have helped? Meaning that because oftentimes uh, it may be a brother or sister or son or daughter, but the parent or somebody might go, oh, that's just the way they are. And you kind of said that. Right. Do, you, do you think education, early education, starting people off with, you know, these are the signs um, of trauma or mental illness, or they might have problems. Um, right. I, would that help? I mean, I, I think I, I so. Don't, I don't I think it would. I think if uh, the stigma, reducing stigma, that's one thing I, that's why I'm very open about my own mental health problems. I recently was remarried and I uh, told my uh, new husband, I said, when we, he asked me out, I said, well, I'll go out with you, but I have, I'm mental, I have mental health issues. <laughs> and I, I, that was very freeing for me because I was so embarrassed by it for so long, but you know, you have to, um, we have to reduce stigma. That starts the the thing that because it's it was, it was such a my mom would say don't tell people what's going on because they'll use it against you and I talk about that in the book how she would but when I when I knew my sister was facing life that first they were she was facing the death penalty and then she was facing uh then they reduced that to life and when I knew she was facing life I was like you know what no more hiding 
because children of abuse, we like to hide. We're keepers of secrets. That's the way I describe them. And she was a keeper. We were keepers of secrets. We couldn't tell what was going on in the home. And um, we still see that today. You know, people say, oh, well, you're, you should be able to tell the teacher. You should be able to tell. Well, when you're at home in COVID, how are you going to tell anybody that, that you're getting abused? Or how do you even go about that? You know, COVID has called a whole nother mental health issue. Yeah, yeah right. I mean, I mean, we could do this for hours. Right. Um, so something that you just said where your your husband you met and, and he wanted to take you out and you were up front and you said look i've i've got mental issues and the first thing that popped into my head and like I said this goes back to that education thing where somebody says that and i'm not going to be not to be chauvinistic but when if a woman says that the first thing <laughs> a guy thinks of is oh yeah don't all of all of you have that but all right. we don't look at it as seriously because i think a lot of people a lot of us we just don't know. It's like, oh, it's, it's just a joke. You're joking. Oh, what do you mean? You look fine and things right. like that. So um, at least for me, I can see where uh, early education, not saying elementary school, but you know, somewhere starting in the seventh, eighth grade or something like that, touching on um, mental health and, and and things like that. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but mental health is not Mental health encompasses a lot of things, right? Your your right. physical being, your mental being, um, how you perceive things, all of that. It's just not to say mental health, oh, that person is crazy because their brain is no good. That's not it. It's more than that, right? That was my test. <laughs> if he passed that test that he could handle that I have mental health issues and into telling the truth, then uh, then he was he was all right because that if and, and more people were up front and we didn't have that stigma of like, oh, no, the, don't stay away. And that was one thing with Vicky, you know, and then her son is a whole different issue with he had schizophrenia, but he was late onset. So he got it in his mid 20s and um, he never told us. We didn't know until after the the incident that he we knew that he was, you know, had a he was different personality. He was a little eccentric. But we didn't understand the depth of, of why and then that, that what he was going through with uh, living with schizophrenia. And um, so since this has happened, uh, I talk about in the book, he has is living on the streets in Germany. This is someone from the rural south that has a thick southern accent. It makes me sound like a, 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 someone that knows how to speak English. <laughs> but um, he is living in Germany now on the streets, homeless and in the prison of his own mind. So I, mental health has just affected every a aspect of, of that. But, you know, with me, I have to take care of myself. I have to have that self-care. And I think that's one thing that, that I hope that is addressed in the book, to take care of yourself. It's, it's not being selfish to have self-care, especially if you have dealt with that. And uh, there's a great uh, a, a thing that I read, a book that was a life-changing for me was, it didn't start with me, which talks about transgenerational trauma. And I didn't understand that, my mom had the trauma and it was it was gifted to her from her mom and gifted to her from her dad. And we don't know how far back it really goes because, you know, you just those those are lost. But it came with us. So with my son, I, I've tried, you know, I, we talk openly about mental health and, and self-care. You have to because I don't know what I passed on to him. Uh, two questions, two things then one is well, I'll start with the second one that I was going to ask you, you, we have all these 
genealogy, we have all these uh, DNA tests and things like that. Do you think it's a good idea for everybody to get those? So at least yeah. there's a record, a family, at least a family record of what's going on? Right. And uh, just like with me, I didn't know who my real father was till I was 36. Vicky doesn't know who her father is. We are, there's eight of us with five different fathers. And uh, the prison won't let me test her DNA. But I think it's a good deal because I had mine. I found out who my real biological father was. And then I, you know, I could see not just the mental health stuff that has happened with them, but also the health concerns. So I think that's a great thing to do for just to know the health history of that. Um, but with uh, the, the, you know, the passing down, you, you don't know really what has happened. And uh, but then there's always the, you don't, you don't know what Pandora's box you're going to open, get your DNA tested. I, yeah. And that's a huge, I think, fear of a lot of people on that. Yeah. Uh, you know, the other question that I wanted to ask is like you were saying, I, I don't know how family things work, but it, nephew, so your, your sister's son, so he didn't know until uh, in his 20s. It, it, are there triggers that set things off or are people who are good at masking and covering or could cover things up and then there's something that triggers it and then they, uh, this might be poor choice of words, but then there's no going back for them once it's triggered? Do you know, is there? A yeah, well, with Kenny, his was environmental, I think, that his was uh, from his father's side. And um, that he had a, an alcohol problem. Plus, he was he was born with alcohol fetal syndrome. My sister was was uh, intoxicated when she had it. So he's had uh, he had um, learning disabled. He was learning disabled his whole life. But then he had environmental plus having an, an alcohol problem and didn't tell anybody. And he didn't believe it. Uh, I, when I, I he was law, I found him in Germany um, two years ago. And, um, and I address this in the book that he still doesn't believe that he has schizophrenia, but he just says that those are just people that need to talk to him. And um, just watching him in crisis, it was, it was, it's, it's really hard for someone because you don't know what, to, how to handle that. Even, uh, you know, trained professional, even because with him, he needs to be on his meds, but, you know, I'm having to fight, go back and forth with, and with COVID shut down everything I can get, but with, Kenny's, it was more environmental. I think it was more of that and the genetic component. Some people, I mean, just, that's why we need to have that stigma reduced and people can feel, because to me, having mental health conditions is just like having diabetes. It's like, you know, I'm a diabetic, plus I have mental health conditions. <laughs> so you have to take the good with the bad. And I play bass guitar, so. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, are you are you pointing fingers and talking about me? No. <laughs> uh, you're right. There there is a stigma, and I I would imagine that folks who might see something, you know, other people walking around, but they're really not there. They know, okay. There's a stigma attached with this, so I'm not going to say that I see these people. So therefore, right. I'm not going to seek out help because if I seek out help. They're going to say I'm this or that, or they're going to put me in this category, and right. I don't want. Or they're to. going to lock me away. I'm going to be put in an institution or something, and and I I know that I, I nobody else feels this way. That's the way I felt like mm. with um, my post traumatic stress disorder. Nobody else feels this way but me. No, there's a lot of people feel that way, but it was just me having the courage in myself and being able. You know, I was in a loving environment that was like, let's let, let's get help. 
I, I didn't want to get help for my mental health conditions. It was um, because I was getting gastric bypass surgery and that was a requirement of my insurance. And I was like, I don't need that. I'm a police officer. I'm, I'm a badass. I can, you know, I can do all this stuff. And um, when I went in there, she said, you know, you, this is, I was like, finally, somebody's give me names for the feelings that I have. It was freeing for me, but it was, it took a lot for me to say those words. Well, and I think the other thing that you just said really hit home probably with people that are going to watch and listen is if you're in a certain field of profession, it probably is even more difficult for for yourself, that person, to look at them and say, I do have some issues and to seek help. Um, like I said, uh, whether it be law enforcement and say, well, you know, I pass all these tests. I'm good. Uh, where you may not be. So, yeah. You know me, psych test I've taken. <laughs> I, I've, uh, and you know, I, I want officers, and because we so, see a certain amount of trauma when you're doing the job, and I, I really would think that correctional officers um, are, are one thing that they see a trauma every day. They have to, and I, and just getting them to to talk about that stuff instead of having that false bravado and that side that oh, we're you know we have to have all this control. You know, and, you saying that makes me really think that uh, in the law enforcement, depends on exactly what you do. There, there should be an annual or at least every two years, like a psych eval, again, might be a, the word, poor choice of words, but something where it'd be nice to get together with a group of your peers and just talk. Right. And that's one thing I, I've, I've started working on. I started working on the um, volunteering with the Compassionate Prison Project, which is it talks about trauma and lets uh, and it helps corrections officers come together and talk about what they've seen and how they're feeling, because uh, they're not paid the greatest and they're they're every day where a police officer can get in your car and you can drive around or you might not get a call your whole shift where a corrections officer is there in it they're in the mix all the whole shift that they're there and um, but, you know, uh, mental, uh, I don't know if psyche valves, because I had psyche valves, and they never diagnosed me with PTSD, you know, post-traumatic stress. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's more of being, having an open um, environment. Like when I was a chief of police, if I had a guy that was had been fighting with somebody at home, they came to work all ticked off, I said, just go home, because we. I don't need you on the street with a loaded gun. I don't. I, I, you're too much of a liability to me, too much of a liability to yourself. But how many departments can do that? They can't because of their manpower shortages. And um, but I had a small department, so I could and I could call in, you know, a reserve or somebody else because I it's just too much of a liability. And you guys went out there with a loaded weapon that, you know, is not right. Isn't that mindset already? They're coming to work mad. And I think there should be a mental health check at every um, roll call when you come to work. But they, yeah. there, are, there aren't. Um, I, I think so too. I mean, I'm not in anything near like law enforcement, but I agree because you, you have these other companies, corporations who have, um, uh, they have these get togethers. Oh, um, they, I don't know what to call it or, but, you know, company team building type of thing. So, mm -hmm. and I know a lot of times a lot, a number of companies, it's, it's almost like a round table just to talk about hey, what's going on. And I, I have a feeling that there's a lot of people who have a lot to get off of the shoulder and then they feel better about it, whether something gets done or not. But um, 
probably would be nice in law enforcement if there's something like that. And, and there is no um, repercussions for you to, for speaking out because I would right. imagine in certain fields like law enforcement, there, there might be a, a fear of, hey, I can't say that. Right. Or, you know, that you don't want to be seen as a sign of weakness because officer presence is always your first line of defense when you're on and when you're out in the field. So you don't want to be seen as weak at all. And, um, but there's comes a time where, you know, we all need a hand, we all need help. And it doesn't, it's not weak. You know, I, I saw my mental health as being weak that I, that, you know, that I had these feelings of things, but it's not weak. It was my superpower that helped me get out of a very abusive family life and when I was a child. I like how you call it your superpower. You're owning up to it. <laughs> I am. I own it. I, I wear it. You know, I, I can't change it. I, I came from trauma and um, I, I've seen a lot of trauma. I was a sex crimes detective most of my career. So I've seen some of the worst evil that people do to each other and children and old people and animals. And I, um, I, I use and my mental health condition was a superpower because it, it helped me pull through because it saved me from the trauma of, and the, you know, the first memory I have as a child is my sister that's in prison right now being uh, brutalized by my mom. My mom just beating her so bad that she was the first thing I received bleed. I didn't even know what blood was. Wow. And that was my first memory in this coming into this world is the first thing I remember is my sister getting beaten. And um, so my mental health conditions have been my superpower. I'm not ashamed of them anymore. They're here. They're part of me. Doesn't mean I can't still be Diana Prince, Wonder Woman. I can still be that with my mental health conditions of just my other lasso. That's right. Now, uh, I, I don't want to lose sight of um, talking about your book, uh, because I think that's important, too. So uh, the book is really about your sister. What is what is your hope um, with the book? I mean, is it a book that you, you again, we kind of touched on earlier that you wrote to release some of these feelings that you have? And is it to, with the hopes of helping other people out there who mm -hmm. read it? I think it's, I, I would like it to be a hope for other people who are in law enforcement and other people who are um, suffering with mental illness that they, they uh, with, with, with people with, living with mental health conditions that they can't, um, they don't know what to do, just like I didn't. I thought I had it all figured out until this happened. And then, you know, having to deal with conservatorship, you know, Britney Spears, we've been talking a lot about her conservatorship. I tried to get conservatorship on both my sister and my nephew before the, and before and after this tragedy. And it was just difficult. It was a, it wasn't like I, you know, we didn't have the money of the Spears, of course, but um, I had, like, I tried to get my nephew served before he went to Germany. And um, we had to have him physically served before they would even start the conservatorship in Missouri. So I would ho I hope that people see this as a ray of hope that there is that there is happiness at the end of uh, of a journey like this, and that we do need reform, not just in policing, but also in the rural counties that we see we tend to forget about because same group of people always run the same thing in these rural counties. You know, that's the same thing. Oh, and and but there can be a change, there can be help. And I want them to just to see there's hope, even though my sister's been serving life plus 25 years, I've never seen her smile as much as she has. So that's so tragic to have to go to prison to be happy. And, to, um, but I, I wanna, I'm gonna see it as, I want people to read the, this and to see that you don't have to live with what you, you came in this world with. That trauma that you go through 
there there is help and to go get the help you know nobody's uh, um uh, exempt from getting help because i did i was i was scared to get help but now that i have i have I, I wake up every morning. I'm like, how did I get this? What did I do in a past life? And then I feel like I'm not deserving of it because that's my mental health conditions. I don't think I'm, but you know, I've got, I had to leave a 26 year marriage because of this tragedy. It, it destroyed my marriage. It destroyed, destroyed every aspect of my life, but both me and my ex-husband are now happier. And, and my, and it just, you sometimes, you know, there's no saying that a, a guy told me one time said, you can't go through hell without getting a few scars. And I've come out with a few scars, but I'm so happy right now. I just, I don't even believe this is my life. <laughs> you know, I, there's that, something that you said in there that uh, triggered a thought where it, it's, it may be, it may be your, you know, the other person's mental issue or whatever it might be, but it doesn't just affect that person it affects everybody around you that, that you know so like yeah. you were saying don't be afraid to ask for help if, everybody needs help at some point in time some need right. help dozens of times but ask for it and look for it um yeah because you know and when my sister went to prison think i i think about it this way too she just wasn't the only one who went to prison. I went to prison too. I mean, I feel like I don't get to talk to her, and especially with COVID, I haven't got to see her in almost two years, and I don't get to do puzzles with her. We were never close growing up because I always she had her mental health conditions kept us apart because I was always goody two shoes and made good grades and was you know I tried to be tried to be the uh, the the good one because my mom you know sometimes parents deem you certain things. My mom deemed me the smart one, so I had to read and do good in school. Whereas she was always deemed the bad seed. And so when I finally admitted to her, hey, guess what? I have mental health conditions. We've been closer than ever because now she feels safe to say, okay, you know, she'll have problems in the the jail. And I said, call me before you go act on that if you can, you know, because sometimes she can't, but sometimes she'll call me and every call always starts with how's your mental health. And that was a big deal for us. That was, that's a big defining thing that we talk about our mental health together. And I guess this is something that you said earlier, too. Uh, oftentimes, people who have the uh, a mental health issue may think nobody else has it. It's just me. But that's not the case. There are many people. So, Yeah, and I'm not ashamed anymore. And I've told her that. I told her, don't be ashamed anymore. You know, we've been keepers of secrets, of mom's secrets, of, of everything that's happened with us. And, um, you know, my mom... Um, she was very, you know, she was the son and everybody revolved around her. And even writing this book, I felt like I was going to be in trouble. And she's been gone since 2001. Um, that's how strong of a hold that children of mental of, of uh, trauma are that the parents have, you know, that the victims have from their abusers. And I still feel that way that my mom's going to get mad at me for writing this stuff because I'm telling what's happened because you don't tell what happens. But now uh, it's, it's I had a moment of clarity for both of us that we and then it, I now my other sisters I'm incorporating talking about what happened to us and talking about their mental health conditions and it's been very freeing it's made me closer with at least uh, another sister besides Vicky wow, or I wasn't before there's so much running through my head as far as questions and asking about you know do you make your 
Do you make a, a safe place for you to go to mentally? Does that help? And all of that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, I, I do. I, I unfortunately am married uh, the greatest man alive <laughs> that uh, knows when I'm having, he knows when there's a change in, in me and he tries, he's tried to educate himself on how to deal with my mental health conditions. That's good. Uh, do you mind holding up the book again and um, giving us the title? And There yeah, it is. If you can't quit crying, you can't come here anymore. That's uh, what uh, Vicki told me the first time I saw her in prison. Because uh, I couldn't stop crying. We never cry in our family. That's a sign of weakness. And um, so, but this was the first time I'd ever cried in front of her since we were little kids. And she said, if you can't, you can't come here because I can't take it. And that was, uh, you know, a turning point for us that we could actually show emotion. And so, Betty, if they can't find it by the title, you know, you, uh, you can't come here. You can't come you here no more. crying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, your, your last name. How, they're gonna have a hard time Frizzell. spelling it. <laughs> yeah, it's like the the old country singers, the Frizzells, the Lefty Frizzell, and them. But I always tell people that way because I've been called Frizzle, and uh, it's Frizzell. But um, if you can look it up on Amazon, um, but you know, if you can't quit crying, you can't come here no more. And it's our family legacy of poverty and mental health and um, and so crime. It, would you call it a an uh, autobiographical? type of a book an autobiography or it is it's a, it's a it's a memoir but you know it tells a lot about you know having this abusive parent that was also loving you know trauma bonded to your your abusive parent because my mom uh in the book I, I talked about on her deathbed she made she told me all the crimes she committed oh. <laughs> and I was a detective at the time I'm like I'm a sworn please don't do this to me mom please um, oh. but um that's my next book I'm gonna be writing about my mom's crimes and how I've investigated them well, you know, congratulations on this. Thanks. I, I don't know if I'll call it new, but this direction that you're taking as far as being an author, and we don't want to call it stories, but they are true stories. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's fantastic. Thanks. Uh, wish the best of luck to you know that and everything else and all the good that you're doing out there as far as trying to, you know, work with uh, the law enforcement and working with civilians as far as you know making people aware right so. yeah if we uh, we are all one big community we sometimes we so, uh, law enforcement we try to distance ourselves from everyone else because we want to stay you know in control and try to help but it's not helping anyone we've got to talk we've got to get solutions instead of it because the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and we've been doing the same thing over and over again since sir robert peel made policing well there you have it Episode number 50 for season number two. That was with Betty Frizzell, and her book again is If You Can't Quit Crying, You Can't Come Here No More, A Family's Legacy of Poverty, Crime, and Mental Illness in Rural America. So thank you again to all of you out there who listen to this podcast, and if you are a returning listener, extra special thank you. And please, if you are not yet subscribed, please consider doing so. Also, if you wouldn't mind, please leave a five-star rating and any comments. Anything helps. Just don't make it negative. Again, my name is Chuck Tuck, and I am the host of Behind the Story with Chuck Tuck. Until next time, thanks again, and enjoy your day. Bye-bye.